I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, welcome to the LRB events online edition. It is very nice to be talking to you from my study to your sofa. Um, I'm really thrilled tonight to be in conversation with Catherine Angel, a writer who I admire enormously. I loved her first book, Unmastered, Book on Design, Most Difficult to Tell. I also love Daddy Issues. And this new book, which I have right here, is just Lit, is just a fantastic, forensic, almost loyally intervention, loyally and yet beautiful intervention into the most fraught territory of desire, consent, sexuality. It's it's so um, thoughtful. It creates an enormous feeling of space, which is something that I think Catherine Angel is very, very good at. So what we're going to do this evening is the usual sort of setup. Catherine's going to read for a bit. We're going to be in conversation for about 40 minutes and you can submit questions at any time by way of the chat. Um, I really encourage you to do that. It's so lovely when we hear what other people are thinking about and wondering about. So please do write your questions down. Catherine, would you like to read? Yes. OK, so I'm going to read um, just from the beginning of the book. From the opening chapter, which is called On Consent. Sometime in the early 2010s, the porn actor James Dean made a film with a fan whom he called Girl X. He would do this now and then. Fans would write to him wanting to have sex with him, or he would put out a call to do a scene with James Dean, and the results would go up on his website. In an interview in April 2017, only a few months before the media would be overwhelmed with discussions of assault and harassment by Harvey Weinstein and others, and only two years after Dean himself was accused of, though not charged with, multiple assaults, he said, I have a do a scene with James Dean contest where women can submit an, submit an application. And then after a very long talk and months of me saying, you know, everyone's going to find out, it's going to affect your future, and basically trying to talk them out of it, kind of, then we shoot a scene. Little of the Girl X video, in fact, involves sex. It's mostly a long, flirtatious, fraught conversation, which circles repeatedly back to whether or not they are going to do this, have sex, film it, put it online. Girl X hesitates. She moves between playfulness and retreat. She is game, then agonized. She lurches ahead, then stalls. Born, reflective, self-questioning. She thinks her dilemmas out loud, and Dean tries to follow along. 
She presumably wants to do a scene with James Dean, but when he opens the door to her, she appears to lose some nerve. She walks into the apartment dressed in PVC leggings, a buttoned-up silk cream blouse with black detail, our gaze behind the camera with Dean filming her. And she paces around in agitation, laughing, a high-pitched nervous laugh saying, oh my God, oh my God. We catch glimpses of the space. It's generically anonymous, sparkling surfaces, lots of pale wood, and then glimpses of him as he puts down the camera, distressed jeans, big white trainers. He occasionally brings the camera to her face. She turns away. He teases her. You're a college girl. You're smart and shit. As they move back and forth in the kitchen with its gleaming central island, in the corridor with its bright white dado rails and deep red walls. He asks what she wants to be called. She doesn't answer. Well, he says, I'm going to call you Girl X until you decide what your name is. She's skittish, nervous. I can't even look at you. Moving away, moving in. She sits down at a shiny chrome table on a white bench. They discuss a contract. The footage fades out. We're not privy to the details. It fades back in and she takes a selfie. She's about to sign, but then she stops and says, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my life? She can back out at any stage, he says. They can rip the contract up. More fading in and out. We see her sign. We can figure out a stage name later, he says, unless you just want to be Girl X. I don't know, she says in a reluctant drawl. I have no idea. Never done this. Girl X's nervousness works to flatter Dean. It's a sign of her awe at meeting this huge improbable star. But it also works to preempt any repercussions she might be fearing. To undermine what might be taken by Dean, by others, as exhibitionism, as asking perhaps for trouble. She's readying herself for exposure. Gerlex is doing something geared towards the hungry gaze of others, something she imagines will excite and satisfy a spectator, including perhaps the one inside herself, the one who wants to watch herself having sex with Dean. But when she asks, what am I doing with my life? What the f am I doing with my life? I feel her imagining too the gaze of another kind of spectator, a sterner one, a censorious one. Both these spectators, the one egging her on and the one admon admonishing her, are most likely internalised within Girl X, as they are within many women, the spectator we are primed to satisfy and the spectator whose disapproval and reprisal we're afraid to provoke. Girl X is reckoning with the spectators inside her head and with the power of spectacle itself. She's the impulsive seeker after pleasure. She's also alienated, self-conscious and inhibited. She veers between being unabashed and then wildly aware of the power imbalance between her and Dean. The stakes for her are high, and they make the decision to pursue her own desires immensely difficult to see through. These dissociative flickers, these changes of gear and register, they come precisely from the power of punitive ideas about women's sexuality and personhood. Girl X is grappling with questions that many women ask themselves, that I have certainly asked myself, the first time they sleep with a man, or the moment they reveal their desire. Will I be in danger? In revealing myself, have I foregone privacy and dignity? Will I be pursued, haunted by my own actions? Will I be able to resist the unwanted desires of others? As saying yes precluded my ability to say no. When Girl X expresses her ambivalence, I want to have sex with you, but I don't know if I want to show the world. Dean is receptive. You don't want to be slut-shamed, he says. He carries on. Like, she says, adopting a blokey voice, I saw you fuck him. Why don't you fuck me? 
It is not an entirely paranoid thought. One of the accused in the 2018 rugby rape trial in Northern Ireland, on entering the room where two other men were performing sex acts on her, and when she said no, allegedly replied, you fuck the others, why can't you fuck me? A woman's presumed desire, even just once, for one man, makes her vulnerable. Her desire disqualifies her from protection and from justice. Once a woman is thought to have said yes to something, she can say no to nothing. In the film, there are many moments of laughter, joy and pleasure. It's quite charming to watch. There's humour and playfulness and teasing. Gerlex and Dean seem genuinely to like each other. There's chemistry. And she punctures him, no longer awed, she's sarcastic, cutting. But there's awkwardness too and mistimed movements, her ambivalence, his uncertainty. Eventually, they overcome the hurdles. They cross the threshold. They have sex. They are sometimes noisy, but there are silent stretches too and pauses in the action. She sighs, they laugh, they chat. And as far as it's ever possible to know from the outside, and it's not, it looks pretty good, fun, joyous. They sit in silence for a while, smiling, then agree to go for a cigarette on the balcony. You want me to turn the camera off, he asks. Yes, she says. Okay, he says. She starts getting dressed. The camera goes off, he says. The camera goes off, she says. He walks towards the camera, towards us, the viewers. The camera, he says, will go off. We'll probably never know what happened after this. What happened in the breaks between the film sections, what was edited out, what conversations we didn't hear, what sex we didn't see. We'll probably never know what Girl X made of the allegations against Dean, whether there were things that day that made her uncomfortable, caused her sorrow or anger. I don't know Girl X's story. But in the film, I see the painful and familiar experience of being pulled in different directions, of having to balance desire with risk, of having to pay attention to so much in the pursuit of pleasure. Women know that their sexual desire can remove protection from them and can be invoked as proof that violence wasn't, in fact, violence. You wanted it. Gerlach shows us that it's not only desire's expression, but its very existence that's either enabled or inhibited by the conditions in which it is met. How can we know what we want when knowing what we want is both demanded of us and a source of punishment? No wonder Gerlach has mixed feelings, paralysed by uncertainty. James Dean understands none of the melancholic weight of sex for Girl X. He doesn't have to. Girl X, however, has grown up with impossible demands. She is living out the double bind in which women exist. But saying no may be difficult, but so too is saying yes. That was fantastic, Catherine. It's such a brilliant start to the book. It plunges you very viscerally into the questions that you go on to unpick so well um saying yes precludes the ability to say no is the is the sort of haunting thread that runs through it i i want to i want to follow through your sort of sequence of arguments around and um, consent desire arouse and so on but the first question i wanted to ask is slightly different and now as i'm framing it, i'm thinking it sounds slightly like a gotcha question i don't mean it like that at all but you'd already written a book about sex and about desire and i wonder what made you want what underscores the sort of desire to return to the territory? What made you want to write this book in particular? That's a really good question. I think it... Um, it's the same book in any way, that's that's not what I mean. Hmm. No, but the themes, I mean, I circle around the same themes, you know, how to, how to kind of negotiate 
agency and power as a woman having sex with men in a world where sexual violence bounds. Um, and I suppose part of it was the kind of catalyst of Me Too um, in the sense that I had a lot of the material already and I was thinking about um, you know, some of the material in the book to do with theories of desire and is desire spontaneous or responsive and um, quite what physiological arousal means about sexual desire and, you know, the status of the body versus speech in relation to how women's sexuality is treated. So those things were kind of already there. And um, and it, it was really me, too, that um, made me kind of realise anew how important it was to link up that material with these new conversations, like new again, because, you know, they're very familiar, but they, they have to keep on happening, um, these new conversations about the importance of consent. And the book, this book, I think, is kind of, you know, the form is very different from certainly from Unmastered, which was, you know, much more fragmented and, and was very much in the first person. Um, and I feel like that book was a kind of exploration of how to use a first person voice to try to get at some of the the uncertainty of, um, you know, the kind of often very fixed and convinced positions that people take up in the public realm about these things for perhaps understandable reasons. Um, but in this book, I kind of, I felt like I was returning to, to um, explicit argument in a way that I had sort of, I'd rejected that in Unmastered. It was such an oblique book. And this was my attempt to kind of return to the, to the virtues of argument, but while still trying to allow a space for the exploration of an issue rather than the kind of categorical statement of it. Yeah, that completely makes sense. So the book opens with this sort of virtuosic account of the arguments around consent that have risen out of the Me Too era. And I just wanted to read a tiny quote from that. Me Too, you write, not only valorised women's speech, but risked making it a duty too, a mandatory display of one's feminist powers of self-realisation one's determination to refuse shame and one's strength in speaking back to indignity. Can we start by just saying what, what is consent culture and what was it that began to sort of trouble or disquiet you about it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a phrase that I try to kind of be quite specific about in the book, partly because there's a lot of really bad critiques of consent out there. <laughs> and I try to be really careful to, um, you know, distinguish my position from other positions. Um, because, you know, my view is that, um, you know, consent is an absolute given. We should only ever have sex with people who want to have sex with us. Um, and broadly, I think affirmative consent, you know, is the right way to approach consent. But in a sense, the book isn't isn't about those kind of legal definitions. And it's about um, the weight we have placed on consent and the disquiet that I um, had felt for a while, but especially in the wake of Me Too, when there was this proliferation of really important and well-meaning statements about the importance of consent, my disquiet was around the way they conjured a kind of um, ideal and responsible subject, a sexual subject, a female subject who manages risk very responsibly. And what I wanted to do was point out that, you know, some of the language that gets kind of disseminated in you know, sort of popular accounts and rhetoric around consent really puts the burden on women, first of all, to know their desire, and second of all, to be able to clearly and confidently express it in order to, you know, 
get pleasure, but in, also in order to be safe and in order to forestall the risk of violence that I think is still represented as just a kind of brute natural fact in the world that women have to navigate. And the fact is, of course, we have to navigate that risk. And risk management is something that, you know, we do because that's how you respond to risk. Um, but I really wanted to point out the way in which some of that, um, some of the placing of the burden on individuals rather than kind of a collective ethics that is part of an individual risk management approach to life has infected the language around consent. So these very kind of gung-ho, um, enthusiastic expressions of consent that we are supposed to give and we're exhorted to give um, are a way for us to try to avoid sexual assault. And I want, I want more than that from a sexual culture. <laughs> I don't want to have to be a good individual manager of risk. I want us collectively to address the problem of sexual violence. One of the things I found really fascinating is that you sort of trace how consent culture arises out of a post-feminist moment that is also where the critics of consent culture come from. So the sort of toughen up little girls school of, say, Katie Rofi. Um, and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about their arguments against consent culture and the, the actually quite large space between what you're saying and what they're saying. Because I think you're right that there are sort of enemies of consent and that you don't fall into those arguments at all. Yeah, so that, that's what I began to be really fascinated by. Um, that these kind of, you know, these exhortations of consent, you know, be, be a strong, um, empowered woman who knows what she wants and can say what she wants and isn't afraid of, of, you know, articulating her desire in order to keep herself safe. That kind of narrative, I think, it sort of, um, it really built in the 90s. It really built in the kind of post-feminist era of, um, you know, of a kind of rejection of feminism that's about, um, that was that was very entangled with a kind of sex positivity, this injunction to be, um, to not be like frumpy and prudish about sex, but to embrace sex. And I think that it shares a lot of um, a kind of ethos with, um, with the sort of lean in versions of feminism, this kind of emphasis on the individual woman her obligation to be um, powerful, you know, to deal with the shit that comes her way and to become individually empowered through feminism, where feminism actually gets collapsed into just, you know, an individual who becomes a CEO or whatever it is. Um, so those languages, so, you know, a very important and well-meaning articulation of affirmative consent where women's sexual desire is taken seriously as part of a sexual interaction, plus this kind of risk approach to sex Plus the kind of, um, you know, insistently, wishfully sex positive ethos of post-feminism, I think coalesced into this, um, you know, quite sort of rousing mantra. Because in a sense, if you're the person who, um, who knows her desire and who, you know, can talk back to men, that's the position we're all supposed to want to occupy. And it feels like a failure or it feels weak to not occupy that position, which is where these other critics come in in the book where I talk about, so The Morning After, written by Katie Royfe in the late 90s and Unwanted Advances by Laura Kipnis, that's a much more recent book. And those books are really concerned about, especially the US campus consent culture, I guess. Um, and their take is that this preoccupation with consent and with, with affirmative consent is actually um, a kind of, uh, 
it's regressive because it returns to an image of women as um you know weak you know they don't know their own desire um and they're unable to just sort of you know get on with pursuing the risky adventure of sex um and i find i mean i think katie royfe's work actually is fascinating and i think she's more interesting than people give her credit for um but there is i think throughout that version of the critique of consent just a kind of horror of the vulnerable woman a horror of the woman who has been a victim and who feels the pain of that very strongly and i'm really suspicious of that because as katie royfe herself i think points out in her recent book the paranoid books she was identifying with the figure of the powerful woman who you know got over stuff but in this, in her new book she says that wasn't really true it was a wish you have this you have this line um the shudder you write the royfy type response is the spasm of recognition and it's the collective warning watch out this idea that there's a sort of recoil about feeling women's vulnerability and actually as we're talking we're just thinking so much of this arises out of where second wave feminism had got to that it's the andrea dworkin sort of the rape atrocity and the boy next door the rape atrocity the rape atrocity and that mm -hmm. feeling of just wanting to move on and wanting to pretend it was somewhere different without actually having solved the problem in the first place yeah. but i wanted you to talk a little bit more about i i loved the idea of that spasm of recognition what that what that is and maybe what can be done with it apart from to just recoil from it and turn into a kind of fantasy narrative of where we are sexually mm. yeah i mean i suppose it does recur in the book in various forms that that question um of of the kind of horror that vulnerability evokes in people and it's um you know it's not just in how we think about women and how we would like we would all like to be this fantasized ideal subject that you know is only setting us up to fail um but it's also of course entangled with questions of masculinity and um and i really i really feel that um and it, it, you know these arguments they're very they're very tricky because they're a very fine line to tread you know um because part of the thread of the book is to think about um well i want i want us not to deny vulnerability and i think that some of the consent rhetoric is effectively articulating an approach to sexual prevention that involves denying what we all know which is that women are disproportionately subject to sexual violence um but i also think that that kind of distaste of vulnerability is of course so much part of norms of masculinity and i think the horror of vulnerability is um is to the detriment of men and women i mean it's to the detriment of anybody and everybody because vulnerability is um is entangled with pleasure that's we we have to be vulnerable in order to experience pleasure and that is precisely what makes us at risk of sexual violence right that the vulnerability is frightening because we know that vulnerability opens us up to physical pain or psychological pain or to abuse and exploitation and part of the thread in the book is to say that you know we shouldn't have to define sexuality in such a way that our sexuality is understood as immune to abuse because as you know living beings with bodies and minds and hopes and fears we are always vulnerable that isn't to say that the exploitation of vulnerability is fine of course it's not and that's where you know some, some of the kind of 
what I feel are these kind of quite dismissive critiques of consent. They invoke this sense of like, you know, sex is very complicated. Um, you know, desire is very mysterious and bad sex happens. You know, shit happens because because of this murky terrain. I'm trying to say something kind of different, which is that, you know, vulnerability is part of human life. We can't wish it away. And when we wish it away, that's when we're in, in real danger. Vulnerability is also part of pleasure. So how can we start to think about relation, sexual relations, but also like social relations that take that vulnerability as a premise from which to start rather than something, you know, that we're kind of closing our ears to and fantasizing some world where we can keep vulnerability at bay? We can't do that. It will always come back. So let's start from vulnerability. And I think that's just as important for men as it is for women, because I don't think men are well served by this inability to tolerate their own vulnerability or weakness or inability to tolerate any instance of failure, partly because if you experience vulnerability as a humiliation, that's often what leads to male violence. Men are violent when they feel humiliated. So maybe trying to detach humiliation from vulnerability would be useful for the whole world. And <laughs> um, this might be a good moment to loop Foucault in. So your title is drawn, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, from Foucault's tongue-in-cheek critique of the sexual liberationists and their utopian ideals of once we can all have good sex, then communism begins and we're in a utopia of bliss. Um, there's a nice, there's a nice Foucault quote that you mentioned, we must not think that by saying yes to sex, we say no to power, which seems to really inform what, what you've just been saying about vulnerability and particularly male vulnerability. How, how does Foucault tie into this book? How, how does he sort of inform what you're doing here or not? I think he informs it a lot, um, although not not in a sort of really um, methodical way. In a sense, but um, the history of this, the history of sexuality is just one of my favourite bits of writing ever. And it's so it's so smart and slippery and playful. Um, and, you know, there's this very kind of wry, sardonic take on, you know, the people, for instance, like that you're writing about in your new book, that kind of, you know, this very hopeful take up of people like Willem Reich and Freud. And um, I find I find him really useful to kind of think with, because I think he he's always got an ear to. Um, to what we're in danger of, of forgetting in that wishful sort of optimistic mode where we, you know, like to think that repression is the root of all evil. And once we get rid of repression, then, you know, a, a hundred flowers bloom sort of thing. Um, and he's very attuned to uh, to what's kind of being denied in that. Which I think is, you know, partly the kind of mood of this book in a way I'm trying to say, you know, that. At the moment, there's this opportunity where we kind of really pay attention to relations of power in public and in private. And, um, and you know, where we think again about consent um, and where we look at sex research, you know, to, to try and make sex better. Right. Because sex is really bad for a lot of people. It's it's painful. It's upsetting. It's humiliating. It's riddled with violence. People are walking around with a hell of a lot of sexual trauma. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if tomorrow sex were good again? But I want to be really careful and, you know, enact a bit that kind of sardonic stance that Foucault has, I think, 
about the modes in which the modes that we take up perhaps kind of uncritically in order to do that work. Um, but I think it's also, you know, it's about trying to think to think about optimism and pessimism. You know, tomorrow's sex will be good again, you know, be so great. Um, but when when we get into that optimistic mode, what are we repressing? In that in that fantasy of, of letting go of repression, what else what else are we repressing? And I suppose you know one of the answers to that is that we're we're repressing um, vulnerability and death. <laughs> yeah, well, um, let's let's talk about those technocratic models of desire. I, I wondered if you could talk a bit about William Masters and Virginia Johnson and those sort of modelling of what desire might look like and what the problems with those are, which I think is another kind of the optimism of being able to have absolute vision. If we can see everything about sexuality, then we will know everything about sexuality and then sex will be good. These sort of odd linkings yeah. of absolute knowledge, absolute exposure leading to something better. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that, I mean, just to think for a second a bit more about your kind of Foucault question as well, you know, that, that quote from Foucault about one must not think that in saying yes to sex, we say no to power. You know, if, if anything is a statement of the the kind of naiveties of the idea of sex positivism, that's it, right? That emphasizing women's sexual desire, their capacity for, you know, enjoyment and enthusiasm around sex, that may be something, that, that may be a really important thing to include in our culture. But by saying yes to sex and by exhorting an enthusiasm for sex, we're not letting power go it's it's all around us you know and Foucault's position was that power is power is everywhere it's not a, a graspable thing from top down it's in it's in all the kind of capillaries of of life um and so the sex research stuff and people like Masters and Johnson come in in the book um because I mean I wanted to include that material in the book because part of this uh you know consent rhetoric sometimes really emphasizes um women's capacity for desire in some kind of really straightforward way you know find out what you want and then tell your sexual partners and that's much less likely to lead to bad sex or god forbid to sexual assault so there's this idea that you can kind of discover your sexuality within you autonomously and independently and then you kind of bring it out into the world i think as a form of armor right it gets used in that rhetoric as a way to protect you if you know what you want you're much less vulnerable to sexual assault. I don't think people know what they want. Um, and I don't think it's easy for research to find out what people want either. And um, Masters and Johnson are kind of quite fascinating because they elaborated this very linear mechanical vision of sex, whereby you have sexual desire, you um, you then get aroused, and then you know if all goes well, you reach orgasm. So it's, it's very sort of procedural. Um, and there's been a lot of critiques of that in the last several decades. And recently, over the last sort of 10 or 20 years, there's been um, a lot of psychologists who have really questioned that model, partly because they were trying to criticize the classifications of sexual dysfunction, the kind of medical and psychiatric language around that stuff. And they point out um, or they argue that, that in women, perhaps especially, desire is a much more responsive and circular phenomenon. So 
partly because it's very susceptible to context and the context can be very complicated for women. They might be dealing with sexual trauma. They might be subject to domestic violence. They might be doing all the bloody housework, et cetera, et cetera. But also because um, so this one psychologist in particular, Rosemary Basson, talks about desire as being arousal in context. And her argument is that for women, desire can emerge from arousal. So you might not want desire in that kind of urgent way that we associate with men, you know, just always being up for it. But you might come around to it if the conditions are right and the conditions are very important. But you might your desire may kind of build. And it's a really interesting model because I think, you know, it chimes with a lot of people's experience. Um, I think it's also valuable because it points to the kind of relational nature of desire anyway, the kind of relational uh, nature of us us as people. But of course, it's a very risky position to take because it opens you up to being persuaded into sex. So there have been a lot of feminist critics of this model, and, and I agree with a lot of them. But again, I kind of use it to think in the book about how um, how we might take it away from the individual level and certainly take it away from a kind of biological model and think, well, if women and men's experience of desire is very different, which I think it is in the world because of how sexual desire is met, because of a very punitive sexual culture for women, it's no surprise that their sexual uh, desire might manifest very differently. But again, shall we perhaps look at the conditions that create or inhibit that desire rather than trying to define things really rigidly in terms of male desire and female desire, and it all gets, you know, very sort of essentialized very quickly. So they're models that I think, you know, have great potential, but the language around them can end up really reifying this incredibly binary view of sexuality and gender, which is not what I want to use them for. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And while we're here, maybe let's just talk about Viagra as well, because I found your account of the history of Viagra, how Viagra is used in male sexual side, but particularly what those conversations around Viagra expose about the female body is seen as truthful, the female body is seen as speaking of its desire or not being able to speak of its desire, really interesting. So mm. I wanted to go into that look a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So with Viagra, when it was um when it burst on the scene in ninety-eight or ninety-nine and was this huge oh, success. Yeah. Um it was, you know, an absolute blockbuster drug. 
And there was a real rush to find an equivalent for women and a real rush in the kind of psychiatric and medical literature to redefine sexual dysfunctions in women in such a way as to facilitate uh, the finding of a similar drug. So there have been lots and lots of debates about what sexual dysfunction is in women and how analogous it is to erectile dysfunction, etc. And the drugs that were initially tested on women that were basically the equivalent of Viagra, which was basically engorgement and blood flow, increasing blood flow to the genitals, they failed miserably in women because, you know, they they worked on engorgement, but it didn't have a, at all an effect on whether women were up for the sex in the first place. And then it kind of all became a question of sort of desire and the complexity of women um, and, and desire being very emotional and very, uh, you know, dependent on context for women. So that, again, it was it got very sort of binarized very quickly. And um, but the thing I found really fascinating uh, is that partly for marketing reasons, but perhaps also because of deeper kind of cultural preoccupations, when men have erections, the narrative about when men have problems with erections, the narrative about that was so much about it being just a mechanical problem, like a little problem with the engineering that the drug could fix. There was no question that men having erection problems didn't feel sexual desire. And I think that is partly because it's very threatening to think about a man as not having sexual desire, that, that the idea of masculinity and lust are so entangled for us that that kind of wasn't a possibility. In contrast, there's been research in recent years that has and that the media have got really crazy about that suggests that women are physiologically aroused by all manner of things, much more than men are. So when shown, you know, pornography and, and footage of animals having sex, women just get physically aroused in a way that men don't. Men have a much more sort of orientation specific sexual response. And the discourse around this has been that, um, you know, women are like crazily perverse, much more than we thought. Um, but importantly, they don't they don't know their own desire because when they're asked about their sexual responses, they say that they don't feel aroused and they don't feel desire for the things that their bodies are responding to. So there's been a lot of very excitable commentary about this. Women don't know themselves. Um, women are really turned on by everything. And in the book, I argue that we have to be incredibly careful with this language, I mean, as, as lots of the researchers themselves are, you know, they're very careful. It's kind of the take up of it that isn't so careful because we know that women experience sexual um, physical arousal and orgasm during sexual assault. The body responds. Obviously, you cannot read pleasure or desire or consent from those things. We have to keep consent and agreement and desire and excitement and arousal very clearly distinct. Mm. Another step that I make in the book is to say that while it may be true that, you know, the body is not the arbiter of sexual desire, I also don't want to just flip that and say, well, what somebody says about their sexual desire is the be-all and end-all of it, precisely because I think that sexuality is a really unknown region in ourselves and we're constantly discovering it and being disturbed by it sometimes. So, you know, I want to kind of place more of an emphasis on women's own kind of subjective relationship to their sexuality, but without falling into the trap of thinking that we all know what we want and can straightforwardly access that pleasure, because I think that is also inimical to women's kind of autonomy and pleasure.
And another aspect of the having to defend yourself against violence, having to arm yourself against violence with your own self, with your own impervious self-knowledge. We're getting yeah. so many questions from the audience that I feel like I should turn to. Gosh, they're really piling in. Um, the conversation around consent has become so ingrained within culture that to offer any kind of critique might be seen as negative or incite some strong feedback. Did you have any fears or thoughts around offending, around offering a nuanced argument into a world that seems quite averse to that currently? That's a good question. Yes. <laughs> yes, and I still do. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very difficult. Um, you know, precisely because because there are a lot of, I think, very short sighted, very dismissive, unthought through critiques of consent. Um and there's a lot of kind of irritation and hand waving, you know, there's a stance which is, oh, consent, it's all kind of so contractual and unsexy and um you know, in my day, we just kind of got on with it. I, I'm allergic to that narrative because I think that we need to articulate really precisely what's useful about this legal concept of consent and what's not useful about it. And, and I think what's not useful is primarily the way it infects our thinking and we start relying on a legal concept to do work it can't do. But I don't want any of that critique to be um, a ground for saying, oh, you know, that's just kind of our socks up and get on with it because that's precisely what I don't want to do. I want us to take sexual violence really seriously and the way the realities of sexual violence and the fears of it profoundly affect people's experience of the world. Um, so yeah, it is it is frightening to talk about this stuff. And um, but you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think that um, yeah, the world is so full of kind of unnuanced positions and very polarized debates. But then I think a lot of people feel that and feel really frustrated with that. They don't feel well served by what they read or hear. And I think people are often very hungry for something that's slower and a bit more patient and that tries to draw finer distinctions and tries to capture something. And so I think it's important to try to do that. Um, but yeah, it is very scary. <laughs> I mean, in ways that are linked, right? That in, I think it's not, it's not unrelated. You know, the speaking our desire is opens us up to shame, and it opens us up to, uh, you know, a kind of gotcha moment if we ever have to accuse somebody of sexual assault. You know, women's women's texts saying expressing their confident sexual desire get read out in rape trials. So, a kind of rhetoric of consent that just says, "Hey, just say what you want," seems to me, you know, to have stopped short. But I think the same is true of, of talking about this material, that there's a sense in which, again, we're kind of made to feel responsible for something that is not our individual responsibility. You know, we need a better conversation around bad sex and good sex, as well as around assault and coercion. And it's a marker of how kind of individually responsabilizing the discourse is that it can feel really scary to try to do something about that and i think people you know all over who are doing really important work around sexuality get targeted with a lot of hostility precisely for that reason that we you know we want to attack we want to attack the person who makes themselves vulnerable but what is that impulse so disturbing a question from nina how do we open up the discourse to hold men accountable for in quote marks sexual laziness there are plenty of good men who are not rapists, but not actively think about how to be better sexual partners. 
How do we make clear that this is a huge oppression of women's sexual lives and their responsibility? I think we I think we have to take pleasure really, really seriously. And I think we have to talk about women's pleasure really early on. I think sex education has to start really, really early. And I think it has to talk about pleasure. And I think we have to talk to children about pleasure. And that's something that people are very frightened of doing for understandable reasons, because they don't want to make children vulnerable to predation, etc. But in not teaching um, girls and boys to take pleasure seriously and take girls enjoyment as well as their safety seriously I think we're never going to get anywhere because what you have at the moment is you have kind of sexual culture where women have incredibly low expectations for sex women tend to define good sex as sex that doesn't involve pain or distress whereas the same as the equivalent is not true for men um, you know, we have incredibly low expectations of, for instance, like the first time women have sex with a man, you know, that the trope of like you lose your virginity, but uh, you've just got to get it over with. It's just going to be horrible. But we should not normalize the lack of pleasure and we should not normalize pain for women. And if you combine that normalization with, you know, the kind of entitlement to women's bodies that is so pervasive in norms of masculinity, no no legal notion of consent is ever going to get us to any better sex. You know, we have to start really early, I think. And, and, and I sort of think that one of the reasons that consent has become so huge in the US in the kind of discourse and that, that it has kind of uh, suffused the whole conversation around sex is partly because there is very inadequate sex education and also because pleasure is almost... Uh, invisible in discourses around sex education in the US because really what a lot of the conversations people are trying to have you know on the kind of you know mythical campus where everybody is in arms about consent the whole time um, part of this of what people are trying to have there is conversations about pleasure but it has have kind of placed the burden of those conversations onto a legal concept because it's less threatening in some ways. It's less icky. It makes people more comfortable somehow to talk about legal legal distinctions and to argue about the boundary between assault and consensual sex than it does to think about pleasure. Again, probably because it invokes vulnerability and that's so terrifying. A question from Anonymous. To what extent do you think that stating consent explicitly means that it can invisibilize certain dynamics and structural issues that cannot be addressed or probed with an absolute statement such as I consent. Do you think the phrase has become lip service for some? These are fantastic questions. Yeah, again, I think that um, everything has been like front loaded onto consent, which is not to say that consent is not important. You know, the legal distinction between consent and non-consent is absolutely crucial. And it's crucial that we kind of you know, teach people about that and, and try to get the, the legal concept right. Um, but there is there's so there's so much else going on. And and I suppose at one point in the book I say um I say something, you know, that like there's there's no there's no notion of consent that can ever um prevent somebody from abusing someone else if they want to. There's a linked question which touches on that, which says, do you think that consent phrases can be exploited and used to permit the same kinds of violence 
that would have occurred before consent culture and education awareness on stating consent, which seems to tie in nicely to that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think, you know, the fact is people consent all the time to things that they don't want to do um, because they feel they have no other choice. Um, and obviously, you know, there, there are different kind of legal definitions of consent within different jurisdictions and different countries, etc. Um, but the fact is you can give consent and you can acquire consent and it can still be an exploitative situation because consent as a concept doesn't get at power relations. It can't get enough at the fine-grained um, imbalances of power that people are subject to. Um, and I think that it it's really important that we that we don't try to capture and convey all those um, kind of qualities of good versus bad sex through the language of consent. We need to try and capture it through the language of good and bad sex <laughs> and through the language of politics, the language of ethics, the language of care, the language of, um, you know, questions of how you encounter the other. Uh, what do you what do you feel entitled to? How how do people respond when they encounter a, another person's refusal? How do you ask for sex? Is it a demand? Is it an invitation? How do people respond to being told that somebody doesn't want to have sex with you? All of that stuff is about how we see exchange, how we see conversation, how we take pleasure or feel outraged by another person's exercising of their autonomy or the exercising of their uncertainty. And those are things that consent can't capture. And I, I don't think that's a problem. We need to get consent right. The law needs to be constantly improved for women. But we, we just need to turn away <laughs> from that legal language at least some of the time and think about how we can try to capture, you know, the situation that women are in when they're in domestic violence. They consent to sex probably a lot of the time. They agree to sex. But do they want to have sex? Do they have options? Is their pleasure even something that can be negotiated within themselves, given their situation? It's not just about the law. It's about it's about so much more, so much more to do with power. Here is a slightly different question to consent. What sort of impact do you think the porn industry is having on our society, particularly since it's become so widely available through free sites like Pornhub? As children can now access it, are you concerned by how this might affect the next generation, our future relationship to sex? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really it's a really difficult one, and I I never really know what I'm asked about this quite a lot, and I never really know what to say because um, because you know I think. I think pornography can just be so so many things. Um, you know, it's just a form. It's a form, and it can take terrible versions and wonderful ones. And um, I always become a bit inarticulate about this question because I suppose, you know, it's it's about what sort of um, vistas we provide for people around sex. And I think you know it's undeniably true that pornography is incredibly widespread, um, whereas you know sex education is. But it's but it's not for me. It's not just that debate between like you know pornography and sex ed, and we just need to have sex ed. It's also that much more pervasively, um, women's pleasure is not represented narratively. You know, 
in TV programs, in films. How often do you see a really beautiful, exciting, evocative portrayal of women enjoying their sexuality, but also maybe feeling ambivalent about sexuality? We, there are such rare representations of the kind of um, the pleasure and the difficulties of sexuality for women. And I sort of sometimes when I get asked about pornography, I feel like I, I almost want to steer the conversation somewhere else because I don't want us to be resigned to just how badly served women are everywhere. <laughs> let's let's move on to something completely different for a minute. I wanted to ask, this is Kay, I wanted to ask about the formal and stylistic choices that you made in writing this book. After some of the problematic reductive readings of Unmastered as Confessional and the focus that placed on you as an author, did you want to step back from that apparently, and I think apparently is an important word there, more intimate first person approach? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, but it, but it is, a, it is quite a different approach. I mean, I feel like this book is like, I'm still very much in there. It's not, it's not a kind of argument where my, uh, where my experience is, is invisible or my, or my sensibility or my, uh, my feelings are, are unreachable, I think. Um, but it is, it is not written in the same kind of first person voice as Unmastered. And I think that, um, I don't know, at some level, it, it may have been that I was just, you know, I didn't want to kind of do that version of things again. Um, you know, I think with everything I write, I sort of, I'm trying to answer a different set of problems in terms of the form of the writing. And with this book, I really, I really wanted to try to capture, um, you know, again, that sort of like a mind thinking, like a person grappling with something, like showing somebody an object, not just arguing, not saying this is my view on consent and this chapter I'll argue this and I'll argue that, but trying to kind of, you know, turn something to the light and say, Let, let's look at this and these are my mixed feelings and, and this is how I think it kind of all ties up. Um, but, but there was undeniably something in me that felt wary of a kind of first person, like quote unquote confessional voice, partly because one of the subjects of the book is the burden on women's speech. I'm very skeptical of, um, you know, me too. I mean, as a, as a movement, you know, especially in its origins, it's such an important thing. Um, but it became a kind of spectacle of women's speech. And, you know, lots of people have written really beautifully about this. Sorry? And women's pain. Yeah, exactly. You know, this kind of requirement to sort of unburden yourself and tell your story in order that... People to read as well, and that stays available yeah. for people to read after the moment where you might feel like you want to make that confession. Yeah, exactly. But again, the, this sense of like the burden is on our speech to resolve the problems in sexual culture. So, so in order for us, in order for you know men to stop abusing their power, women have to parade the stories of the most painful and humiliating moments of their life. How interesting. I think it's not a coincidence that it was linked to Hollywood because it was also about spectacle and, you know, storytelling and the kind of, you know, the monstrous figure of Weinstein and, you know, these these impeccably beautiful women. I mean, it was a kind of horrific fairy tale. And so I was very sceptical of the way, you know, again, 
the emphasis was placed on our duty to speak and, you know, that duty and also the duty to speak about our desire in order that we forestall the risk of sexual violence. We shouldn't have to speak as individuals from positions of pain and fear in order for the world to take sexual violence seriously. <laughs> so, you know, that wasn't a conscious part of writing this book, but I, but I do think somewhere I was trying to enact a sort of refusal of like narrative but why why are we so invested in women's narratives and yet nothing changes you know <laughs> here's a really lovely question from sam Pryke. the evocation of vulnerability suggests younger life some inexperience naivety shorter term relationships etc do you think the physical frailties of the body with aging actually make vulnerability more acute as we get older yeah absolutely i mean i think you know, in the way that I use the term vulnerability in the book, it's um, it's not I, I, I'm not equating it to, to youth or inexperience. I mean, I mean, actually, I think that's one of the problems with some of these conversations is that. Um, you know, there can sometimes be a, a position that people take, which is like, oh, well, you know, when you're young and you're vulnerable and you don't know anything, sex can be really bad and disappointing because that's just part of growing up. Um, whereas, you know, when we're all older and wiser, we we toughen up and we, you know, we understand about the world. And I, I really don't like that position. Um, so in the book, I talk about vulnerability, you know, detached as well from gender, like trying to trying to also point to, you know, point to masculinity as a, a place where, in vulner where vulnerability is insistently denied. Um, and I think, you know, I say like, I want to I want to welcome men to vulnerability. If you know, if women are the kind of fetishized place of vulnerability, come and come and join us because actually it's an interesting place to reside and it's where it's where we need to be working rather than, you know, separating strength and vulnerability out. And I think that, you know, equally equally true um in respect of, of age. I mean, I think that and you know, this past year I think has been so interesting in terms of these questions because people who have been able to think of themselves as invulnerable um, have had to realize that they're vulnerable to the pandemic. And that has created all kinds of chaotic, scattered reactions because it's so destabilizing. Um, and so I just think the more the more we can understand our shared vulnerability, the more potential there is for, for good to come. Here's a good question that touches on that from Emily. How can we help men to feel more comfortable expressing ambivalence, vulnerability and confusion about sex and their own sexual desire? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's legitimate um, to that question. It's But you don't have to know. Yeah. I mean, you know, as with all these things, like trying to trying to widen the conversation, trying to trying to teach boys that it's okay to feel things, trying to, you know, have cultural forms that that don't just fetishize some kind of wooden impenetrability and um toughness. But, you know, I mean I could just sort of list all those all those things, you know, all those initiatives that people all over the world are trying to do in, you know, in all kinds of ways, whether it's kind of through sex ed or through, you know, popular culture. I mean, 
but 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 really i mean the reason i say i don't know is that i it's i'm trying to to kind of acknowledge that it's phenomenally difficult that you know the force of these narratives of gender i think despite the fact that we're in a moment where there is so much that is loosening in really wonderful ways and you know a lot of this kind of binary approach to positions of kind of strength and mastery versus in you know vulnerability and softness there so many things are eroding those distinctions and it's all to the good but it is incredibly hard to do it's it's like a juggernaut that we're dealing with and i i wish i knew how to i mean obviously buying this book is a beginning <laughs> what you're supposed to say as a writer like buy the book it will tell you all the answers but i mean it won't but maybe it will help <laughs> I think we're probably running out of time for these questions, but there are an awful lot of them. And I just want to say Catherine can see them afterwards. So if you feel that your burning question didn't get dealt with, I, I know that she will be able to have a look at them later. And um, I wanted to just ask one last thing. Consent, you say, cannot sustain the weight of all our emancipatory desires, that women experience so much misery making sex is a profoundly political and social issue and consent cannot solve it for us. We've talked so much about why bad sex is a political issue. And I just wanted to, like, what is the step? To, I mean, apart from buying your book, which I definitely think is a good first step. <laughs> what, what is the road towards the tomorrow where sex is good again? Is it just giving up on the idea that there is a tomorrow where sex is good again? Is it accepting that sex is this very difficult region of our lives where difficult feelings come to light? I think it, it is partly about accepting a certain zone of of difficulty and confusion, not to, in order to just give up on a better, a better tomorrow with respect to sex. But I think it is really, it's really important not to kind of fetishize certain um, systems, you know, the legal system, the scientific research into sex. There is, there's so much hope invested in these realms. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, where we invest so much hope is where we have to be the most skeptical because that kind of wishful relationship to something really intractable is um, is a sign that something is being um, is being denied. And I think it it is really important to to allow for not just not knowing and and. I think it, it, that can be really frightening because, if, you know, if we feel that um, women or anyone doesn't know what they want, then it, it feels like we're putting them at risk. We're putting them at risk to, to men, you know, to pick up artists who are like, let me let me use that uncertainty as an opening for my bullying. So there are risks, but I but I think it's really it's really important that we don't base a kind of sexual ethics on a lie because it will always come back to haunt us if we if we try to enact some kind of ideal of you know transparent self-knowledge and i you know i know what i want and i travel out in the world asserting it first of all that's not the answer anyway because women get punished for knowing themselves and for and for saying what they want anyhow but it will come back to bite us because because it's a lie and you can't base a kind of sexual optimism on a lie. You have to start with the reality. And the reality is people find sex frightening. They find it terrifying. They find it painful. They don't know what they want. And ideally, 
we would have interactions with others that would start from that and would see that actually as a source of pleasure and adventure and delight. Unfortunately, that's often not the case, but I think that that is what to aim for, that actually uncertainty is the place where really wonderful things can begin. That that's where sex will be tomorrow, will be good tomorrow. <laughs> I like it. I think that's a good manifesto. Um, Catherine, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Everyone you. really loves by this by this extremely handsome book as well. It's very attractive. Yeah, um, thank you too to the LRB bookshops are having a rough time at the moment. So please do support your local indies, especially our beloved London Review bookshop. And hopefully we'll be back in the shop having conversations soon. And thank you everyone who's been here tonight. It's been a real pleasure talking. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.